So Mark chapter 10. My first job was at, as a cashier at the public pool. There are three jobs at a public pool, by the way, if you're interested. There's first the lifeguard. They get all the glory and the credit. There's the concession stand. They get the second most glory and credit. And then there's the cashier. And that's what my job was. I was the cashier. I was not a lifeguard. I didn't work with the food. But when people came to the pool, they had to pay a few dollars. I was responsible for taking that. And it was a legit Operation. There was a cash register and this was pre-computers and everything. And so there was a till and the till said how many people came and uh, all of the money and the, all of that. You've, you've seen a cash register before. Um, and, uh, I, that was my job. I worked there two summers in a row. My first summer, the pool manager, she was responsible for all of us. She would occasionally, probably once a week, come to me and say, hey, the next four or five people that come, I don't want you to open the cash register so that it doesn't go on the till. I want you to set the money aside uh, because I want to buy the lifeguard's lunch. And so I never got included in that, but she was my boss. And so... I would do it. So the next three or four people that would come by, uh, five, six, seven, until she had about $25, I would set it aside and then I would go and give it to her. And then a pizza would show up later or somebody would make a run to the local fast food shop. And, uh, so that happened about once a week for the first summer that I worked there. The second summer I worked at their same pool, a different pool manager, but she would do the same thing. She would say to me, hey, I want you to set aside some money. The next four or five people that come in, I want to buy the lifeguard's lunch. Well, it hurt my feelings that my lunch was never getting bought, and I didn't think that it was fair and right. I was working just as hard as they were. In fact, I was working harder than they were. They were just sitting up there uh, working on their tan, but I was in a little booth and actually had to communicate with people. And, um, and so, so I thought, well, she's doing this for the lifeguards. I'll just do this for me. And so about once a week, two or three people would come, and I would set the money aside and I would go to buy my lunch. Now, if you had asked me in that moment, now I was a Christian and went to church consistently, and uh, if you had said, are you stealing from the public pool? I would go, well, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a gray area. Uh, Is it stealing? Yes, but I'm just doing the same thing that she's doing for the lifeguards. I mean, I'm doing it for myself, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, now it is definitely stealing. Uh, (laughs) But then it was a little bit unclear to me, uh, cloudy, gray. That really is a lot of the way that we think about money. Uh, Our thinking on money is always inconsistent. And it is usually layered with multiple layers. There's always a yes, but. Or a, well, probably, nah. That's our thinking about money. And our goal in Mark chapter 10 today is to interact and adopt Jesus' thinking about money. Last week, we talked about the rich young man. And this week, we are taking the baton and diving into Jesus' immediate teaching after the rich young man goes away sad. But before we begin, two things I want you to write down on the back of your listening guide. First, we see ourselves as rich and poor. I'm guessing almost all of us in here today 
we'll see ourselves in the next three months as both rich and poor. There's a phenomenon that happens with my kids. They'll get $20 for a birthday or a grade card or something. They'll, they'll accumulate some money and they're not good at keeping it. So I usually take it and put it into my wallet or pockets or whatever for safekeeping. And this miracle happens. It's the fish and the loaves that happen once that money is in my wallet because they'll say I have $20 on the day that they get it. But a week later, after I've held on to the money for seven days, somehow they miraculously have $30 when they're talking about it. And then if I hold on to it a little bit longer, you'll hear them in Target say, I really, really want that. And I'll say, how much money do you have? And they'll say, well, I have $50. And you have to say to them, how has your money grown? I'm not a bank. I'm not giving you interest. I'm not loaning out your dollars and cents and making money on the side. You had $20 at your birthday. I've held on to it for one month. You still have $20. This is math. But somehow in their mind... It doesn't work that way because the reality is, is we do not think logically about our money. Our thinking about money is rarely logical, but it is always personal. That's why some of you are already annoyed that we did not skip Mark chapter 10 verses 21 through 32 and just move on to the next miracle. Because I think inherently we know that our thinking and our attitude towards money is not logical but it's definitely personal. We do not like for people to tell us what to do with our money. We don't like when people tell us what they are doing with their money because we think inherently there is a requirement for us to do the same. It's rarely logical, but it's always personal. And we see ourselves as rich and poor in comparison. In comparison to other people, we're rich. In comparison to other people, we're poor. Really, all comparison is, is looking into a mirror so that you can see what you already want to see. If you feel like you have less than, then you will look to someone who has more than and go, well, I have less than. If you feel like you have more than, you're feeling good about your car and your home and all that you have and you're feeling prideful about it, then you will start to compare yourself to people who have less than. Comparison is usually just a mirror that reflects what we already believe and see, and money is no differently. Chalobi shared last week a few statistics that make us feel like maybe we have more than when he said half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. We've heard consistently the last couple of years about the 1%. You see this stat on the screen, almost 50% of the world's wealth lies in the hands of just 1% of the population. So that makes us feel like we have less than if there's a 1% out there that has half of the world's money. And yet the next sentence is, is if you make $50,000 a year or you aspire to make $50,000 a year, then you are in that 1%. So even in this one slide, we see ourselves as both poor and rich. Well, I'm not a part of 1% of the population. Half of the world's wealth is not lying in my hands. But again, if you aspire to make more than $50,000 a year, you are aspiring to be in that 1%. So the reality is, is in the next three months, you will consider yourself as having more than other people, but you will also consider yourself as someone who has less than other people. Number two, before we begin, your resources are a gift from God and are now yours to use. 
Psalm chapter 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything is God's. All of that money in the bank is God's. That home, it's God's. That car, it's God's. Those clothes, God's. Those toys for your hobbies, God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So your resources, whatever you have right now, whether you think that you have a lot or you think that you have a little, all of that is God's. But they are now yours to use. How do I know that? Well, I know that from Acts chapter five. Remember Acts chapter five, Barnabas, he's famous. He was a companion of the apostle Paul. He had some land and there were people in the church that had needs and the church had needs. And so Barnabas went and sold his land because he didn't need it. He wasn't using it. And he gave the proceeds to the church. 100% of those proceeds from that sale went to the church. Well, this was inspiring to a lot of people. That's the way generosity works. When you see somebody being generous, we also wanna be generous. It's contagious like that. So people in the church started doing the same thing. And there was a couple in the church who did the same thing. They had some land that they were not using, that they wanted to donate. And so they went and sold it and they gave most of the money to the church. Still incredibly generous. But they let everybody believe that like Barnabas, they had given all of it. They lied in the house of God. And so they died. But right before they died, Peter, who was leading the church, he said this in Acts chapter five, verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Peter said to them, you didn't have to give it. You didn't have to sell it. It was yours. It was at your disposal. So both things are true today. Everything that you have, will ever have, is God's but what he's placed in your hands is now yours to use. And he set it up this way, why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven, you know this verse, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. God is not interested in a financial transaction in which he loans you money and then you make unjoyful payments back to him. He is not interested in that kind of financial relationship with you. He wants whatever you offer to come from a place of joy and not reluctance and not compulsion. So Mark chapter 10, verse 23, let's interact with Jesus teaching about money. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. A few things I would love for you to 
write down. First, being rich is an obstacle in entering God's kingdom. Being rich is an obstacle to entering God's kingdom. He says in verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now we know that being rich is not the only obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. John chapter 3 says if we love our sin, it's an obstacle. Religious pride is an obstacle, John chapter 5. Wrong priorities, it's an obstacle to following Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to someone, follow me. And they said, first let me go and bury my loved one. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, you follow me. Being rich is not the only obstacle to entering the kingdom of God, but it is an obstacle. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, to help us understand Jesus' teaching. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So why is being rich an obstacle into entering the kingdom of God? First of all, it is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is like a seed that goes into the ground and what will come to harvest are all other kinds of bad decisions. The love of money leads to a lot of isms, elitism, racism. In fact, right now there are 27 million slaves in the world right now as we speak. We think back even into our own terrible American history to the institution of slavery? What was in the mix in both cases, now and back then? A love of money. Love of money leads to all kinds of isms that are ugly and disgusting, and they're still around today. The love of money leads to more and more greed. A love of money leads to pride. A love of money leads to self-righteousness. It's a root of all kinds of evil. And it says it is through this craving. Through this craving. That's why money is so personal to us. Because we crave that purchasing power. That's why when you're down, you want to go buy. It's like when you're hungry, you want to eat. There's something in us that craves purchasing. There's something in us that craves being hungry for more and more and more. And what does Jesus say that we should crave? He said we should crave the kingdom of God. We should seek first the kingdom of God. He says we should crave, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's craving, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. We wonder when we love money, we wander away from the faith because it's distracting. I don't have to think about life's most important questions. I just go and buy something. I don't have to think about my relationship with God and the questions he's asking me and the questions I'm asking him. I'll just build myself a comfortable place. Such questions are not relevant. We wander away, but then it says we're pierced with many pangs. If we love money, we will come to regret it. 
eventually. Everyone who loves money will come to regret it. There's a lot that you can buy with money, no doubt about it. Also, many of us bear the wounds of our own love for money or someone else's love for money, pierced with many pangs. Being rich is an obstacle to entering God's kingdom, is what Jesus says. Number two, Jesus' statement surprised the disciples. Verse 24, but the disciples were amazed at his words. And in verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. So Jesus says this, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've sewn lately. Uh, Probably not. I have a needle, very, very small. Camel, very, very big. That's all you need to know to be a Bible scholar. Very, very small, very, very big. Jesus said it's easier to jam that thing through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. The disciples are shocked. They're exceedingly astonished. Why? Because the thinking of the day, the dominant Jewish view was that riches were an indication of divine favor and a reward for piety. They were in the bad habit of reading the scripture that we are in, which is we read and remember only the parts that we like. We gloss over and forget the parts that we don't like. And so as they would read their scripture, what we call the Old Testament, they would remember how God would bless with wealth, bless with wealth, bless with wealth, bless with wealth. They forgot some of the other parts. But the truth is the scripture teaches both positive things about money and negative things. Proverbs chapter 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. It's negative. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You want to grow your net worth? You do it little by little. Don't try to do a get rich quick scheme. It doesn't work like that. It's positive. It's negative. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 is positive. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So if you leave an inheritance for your children's children, your grandchildren, the Bible says it's a good thing. It's a good thing if you're able to do that. First Timothy chapter five, verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. So those of you who work really hard to provide for your family, the Bible says it's a great thing. You work hard so you can take care of your parents. It's a great thing. You work hard so you can take care of your children's children. It's a great thing. In fact, if you don't do that, if you're being lazy and not taking care of your family and you don't have any money because of your laziness, the Bible says that's a terrible thing. But remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, no one can serve two masters for either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. First John chapter two, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. So if you and I are puffed up today because of our bank account, because of what we have, the Bible, the the scripture says that's, that's not a good thing. That's not from God. Proverbs chapter 11, verse four, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And we could go on and on and on and on. There is tons of teaching in the scripture about money. Some of it is very positive and some of it is very negative. But the thinking of Jesus' day was if you had a lot, you were blessed by God. So when Jesus says actually having a lot can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God, his disciples, their mind is blown. Number three, entering the kingdom of God without God is impossible. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished 
and said to him, Then who can be saved? Because the rich young man, you remember from last week, he was very righteous. In fact, he said he followed all the commands. And Jesus says, you've, you've not done enough. Remember, you have to sell everything you have. You have to give it to the poor and come follow me. And, and he was unwilling to do that. And so his disciples are saying, if this guy can't be saved and he follows all of the commandments. And there was an, an admittance in their own mind. He follows these commandments better than we do. They say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And we see two things in the scripture. We see that our salvation, that's what they ask, who then can be saved? God chooses us for salvation. We also see in the scripture that you and I choose to believe in God. I mean, these are the scriptures, right? That God chooses us. His choice of us is important. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. He chose us in Christ. And and I didn't have room to put it on the slide. It said before the foundation of the world. So before Adam and Eve were walking around naked and unashamed, he had already chosen you to be in the family of God. John chapter six, verse 44. No one comes to Christ unless the father draws him. This is what Jesus said. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God has action in our salvation. He was there before we were there saying to us, I want you. Before you said, I want God, God said, I want you. On the other hand, our action is important. We do have a choice. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says, we are saved by grace through faith. We have to have faith. Faith, John chapter three, verse 18. The one who believes in him is not condemned. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. He does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Those are all things we can do. We can have faith. We make a choice, a faith choice. We make a choice to believe. We make a choice to repent. Now, there are lots of theological theories for how those two things exist in the same world. Because in my mind and in your mind, Both cannot be true at the same time. So what happens is theologians smarter than me and smarter than you spend their whole life trying to answer this one question. How do these two things exist at the same time? And what you happen is when you read their brilliant books, they end up leaning towards one side or the other as being more important. Because in our minds, we we can't work it out. Uh, But I embrace the mystery because Isaiah chapter 55 says what? God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there is some rationale in thinking where both of these things can exist at the same time, where God chooses me and I choose God. And I'm happy to let the mystery be there, to have a holistic theology where we're doing our best not to just pick parts and believe and practice those and ignore other parts. So why is it important for Jesus to say to these disciples, listen, entering the kingdom of God is impossible with man. It's only possible with God because we see ourselves as earners. We're earners. That's why our money is so important to us because we earned it. We despise trust fund babies. I mean, if you are a trust fund baby, we don't despise you personally but you would never introduce yourself as that. Hey, my name's Curtis. I just want you to know my grandparents were like super rich back in the day and I don't ever have to work and have all kinds of toys. 
and I'm kind of a jerk. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't do that because right? we value hard work because we see ourselves as earners. And so when somebody else is not out there earning it, we despise them. We look down on them. Right? And this even goes to our faith. Many of us think God is mad at us, that God is right now not pleased with us because we've not done enough to earn. We've not been earning it. But when Jesus says, listen, this is impossible with you. You can make all the choices that you want in this world and salvation would still be impossible because I was there in the beginning choosing you. What it tells you and I is we are not earners, we are receivers. Because if you're thinking that you're earning your favor with God, how much more are you gonna think that you earned those dollars and cents? And once we think that we earned it and it's 100% to our credit, whatever we have, we'll be less likely to share it. So Jesus says, getting into the kingdom of God without God, it's impossible. And that is connected to the way that we think about money. And finally, number four, sacrificial generosity is a strong investment strategy. Verse 28, Peter pipes up. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter just wants Jesus to say out loud that he noticed. You told that guy, the rich young man, to sell everything he had, give it away, and come and follow you. Peter raising his hand going, hey, we, you know, I don't want to brag, but we did that. But there's an unspoken question in his heart, which Jesus answered, which is, we did that. What does that now mean for us? Look what Jesus says, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Sacrificial generosity is a strong investment strategy. Jesus said the return on investment is a hundredfold. I watched a special on Shark Tank last night. I don't know if any of you are still on board with Shark Tank. I'm still holding on. Shark Tank is you invented some awesome mop and you want to take it to the world and you go and appear before these millionaires and billionaires and they decide if they're going to invest in your business. So last night was a big celebratory thing because they've invested $100 million as of this month in the last seven or eight years or whatever it is. And they were bragging about their investments that made two and three times their investment. National TV, ABC 2020, this is what they're bragging about. We invested in a few of these businesses and they have returned twice, three times what we invested. And what does Jesus say? A hundredfold, a hundredfold. But he says, you're gonna get a hundredfold with persecutions. Because faithfulness is both rewarded and persecuted in this life. That's what Jesus says. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. That was everything that he had said that they had left. With persecutions. 
Faithfulness is both rewarded and persecuted in this life. January 23, over in Vietnam, I don't think of Vietnam as a hostile country towards Christian faith, but there was a group of Bible students studying the scripture together and the police came in, raided the Bible study, took those Vietnamese students off to prison, the missionary who was leading them, fined and exiled out of the country. That happened January 23rd. Two days ago, I went on to Twitter and I searched the hashtag, thank you God. It's a good theological word. The first four things that popped up. Thank you God for an increased uh, business for a wedding DJ. Thank you God for someone who was accomplishing their New Year's goals and credit to them that they're still with it. The rest of us have long quit. Uh, Thank you, God. Uh, Someone was saying because they've been looking for a job and they got a job. Number four, uh, thank you, God, because their baby slept six hours in a row that night. Which if you have a baby right now, you're like, I would go to the mountaintops of Twitter to thank God for a baby who sleeps six hours in a row. So who has the favor of God? the DJ whose business has ticked up, the person who was looking for a job and now has one, the parents who got six hours of sleep in a row, or the Bible students who were thrown into jail and the missionary who was exiled. Who has the favor of God? Who has God's pleasure? In this life, both, both, It is a blessing from God when you're looking for a job and you get one. It is a blessing from God when your baby sleeps. It is a blessing from God when your business thrives. It is a blessing of God when you get to move from an apartment to a home. Jesus says it shouldn't be rare that you would receive a return on your investment in this life, but with persecution things are not going well for you right now, it doesn't mean that you don't have the favor of God. It means that you have the favor of God, but you live on planet earth, broken by sin. And then he says in verse 30, 31, no, verse 30, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. In eternal life, we will experience eternal reward. Now, the way most of us think about eternal life, it does not sound that rewarding. Most of us are thinking about eternal life as the church service that never ends. We read the first few chapters of Revelation and there's lots of singing going on. And you're like, listen, I love music, but I do not love like an eternity of music. And at church, we sing about the same 20 songs. So am I going to have to listen to the same 20 songs forever and ever and ever? Some of you are hand raisers and you're 100% into it. And you're like, but not even I want to raise my hands for eternity. Some of us are in our pockets the whole time. And you're like, is this my posture for the rest of time? That doesn't sound that appealing, does it? 
But eternal life is, is, is so much bigger than a few songs here and there. I remember, remember what the scripture teaches. We already talked about that God, he chose you before the foundation of the world. That's where your story started. Your story did not start on the day that you were born. Your story started before God had ever created any of this that we live in. But then you were born. And at some time after you were born, you recognized two things. One, that you needed a savior and that Jesus is that savior. And you committed your life by faith to him. And the scripture says that when that happened, you entered into the kingdom of God. Jesus promised that in the same way that he left, he would return. So one day he's gonna return and you're gonna enter into a whole new phase of life where he's bringing heaven to earth. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Some of us won't make it. We'll pass away before Jesus returns. So you'll die. And after your death, you'll go to what we call heaven, what Jesus called paradise. You'll start experiencing that eternal life. And then you will return with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again with all of his angels and great power and glory and sets up that new heavens and new earth. This is your life. And when we think of eternal life in that scope, And we think about being rewarded eternally. It sounds more appealing. And we realize that the time that we have to be rewarded is so much longer than the time that we're asked to be faithful. The reward is going to far outweigh the sacrifice. I was an economics major in college and I didn't learn much, but what I did learn is that an investment is all about holding off now so you can hold on later. It's holding off on spending now, investing it, so you can hold on to more money later. So where can you invest? Where, you can, where can you internally invest? You can hold off now in this life Instead of doing more and more and more and more and more, hold off now so you can hold on to more and more and more and more reward eternally. Where can you invest? Well, first you can personally invest. That's what we see with Lydia. So if some of you have a lot of resources, you don't feel bad about that. Lydia in Acts chapter 16 is a wealthy woman, entrepreneur, business owner, employer. She hears the gospel on the side of a river the apostle Paul and Luke and Silas and she believes and immediately she starts to use her resources for the good of the kingdom. So if you have a lot of resources today and compared to most of the world, you have a lot of resources, you use them for Jesus' name. You can personally invest. And the great thing is we can corporately invest because alone we can do a little bit, but together, if we pull our resources together, we can do incredible things. That's what the offering is, by the way, every week. That's not just uh, paying the light bills. Uh, that's us pooling our resources together so that we can do more. In fact, in the next three years, by God's grace, you and I together will see three and a half million dollars leave 
our address and get into the hands of people who need it most in our city and around the world. I'm guessing that alone, you cannot give three and a half million dollars in the next two years. But together we can. Last year, you did ministry on almost every continent of this earth. And you may not have personally gone, but if you personally gave, you did. So what are you gonna do with your resources? Where are you going to invest them? Jesus ends in verse 31 by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. His kingdom, it's upside down and it's backward. Everything in us and everything in our culture says, go up, 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 go up. I just wanna warn myself today, I wanna warn you that we would be careful on our way up that we're not actually on our way down according to Jesus. Let's pray. In the spirit of prayer, why don't you ask God directly, God, what are you saying to me? What are you speaking to me? Where are you leading me? Jesus' name.